back in the spring, I had a good chuckle when I found a topic of agreement between the AFL-CIO and Goldman Sachs. And not just agreement between those two entities, but lots of heads of state, labor folks, and business titans. Their agreement was around the idea of creating trillions of dollars in grants, not debt, to give to poor countries needing immediate financial aid right away to contend with the pandemic. Well, I'm circling back to this idea because it's still pretty hot. And we're also going to talk about taxes, as in the battle that's starting to brew on raising taxes on the very wealthy, which, alas, no surprise, won't be easy. This is Jonathan Tassini, and it's great to have you with us for our show for December 2nd, 2020. If you missed Giving Tuesday yesterday and just feel compelled today to give, I have the perfect solution. Go over to workinglife.org, look for the podcast tab, and click over there, and you will see a link to Patreon where you can sign up as a one-time sponsor or a monthly supporter of our show. Or you can do the same thing by using ActBlue. You can go over to ActBlue, look for Working Life with Jonathan Tassini, and there you also can become a one-time sponsor or monthly sponsor. And by the way, I have also soft-launched an e-newsletter, which you can subscribe to at Substack. It's called, surprise, Working Life. And a little hint, that newsletter will soon be behind a paywall. And for all of the folks who sign up before the paywall goes up, well, I'm going to give a little break on cost. So you might want to check out a recent post I made there, which basically hammers home the no-brainer idea to end the pandemic in 30 days by locking down the country and paying everyone to stay home. And I'm going to keep repeating this week after week as we get closer to the end of the year when unemployment runs dry for millions of people. Eviction moratoriums will end. No more pandemic special paid leave. It's just immoral and dumb economics, but that's what's going to happen to millions of people. Just to repeat, whether we like it or not, two-thirds of this economy is powered by consumer spending. So you have to go big now because interest rates are at record lows. So any borrowing is going to be done in the cheap. And put aside the moral idea of this, we can easily pay off down the road in the security that we will give to millions of people and the economic activity that will grow from this investment. Compare that, by contrast, to months and months of wages lost, industries crippled, and suppressed economic activity. It's a bargain. Speaking of bargains, here's what the weird bedfellows I mentioned at the top of the broadcast are singing from the same page about. They're pushing the International Monetary Fund to create 2 to $3 trillion in so-called special drawing rights, which is essentially a way of creating money during the pandemic by basically writing in a line item credit in a budget. That money can then be taken from the IMF and used by countries for lots of things, like lowering the global death toll, which could actually reach 40 million people if it continues to ravage weak countries. And what those countries could do is use that money to build up their healthcare systems or just providing food and economic relief. An important point here, the special drawing rights are outright grants, not loans. 
so countries would not be adding to their debt burdens, and it would not cost the U.S. taxpayer a single dime. Now, put aside the moral imperative. The reason Goldman Sachs and other business leaders and corporations are behind this push is just pure economics. If you are a capitalist, which I'm not, you want the global economy to stop imploding, and you want it to recover. And the only way to do that is to provide a big flood of support to countries so people stay healthy and economic activity perks up, right? That's logic. The big block on this idea was the crazy ideologues in the White House. And because the U.S. has the biggest voice traditionally at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the White House was blocking the creation of this badly needed credit line. Now, there are new twists in the story, which I thought important to discuss with Isaac Evans France, the director at Action Corp, and Dan Weviot, a farmer advocate based in Iowa. So, uh, D- Don and Isaac, let's first set the stage, and I'm going to ask Isaac to explain a little bit about what an SDR is, a special drawing rights. And is it just simply the easy way to explain it, created money by the IMF? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good explanation. It's a virtual currency that the International Monetary Fund can create and has created in the past, as recently as 2009, that's specifically for situations like this, when we face a financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And when you say create a currency, I immediately think Bitcoin, but we want to make sure that the, our audience doesn't think that it's that speculative, as you point out. These things actually have happened before, and it's especially important to try to think about this now because as was pointed out in a letter to a bunch of congressional leaders, and I'm going to refer to that in a second, we are experiencing more economic recessions than ever recorded since 1870, and the depth to which the global economy has collapsed affects obviously everybody uh, throughout the globe and is suppressed not just economic activity, but is really endangering people's lives outside of the pandemic. Right, Isaac? Yeah, that's true. And my organization, Action Corps, is concerned about the humanitarian impact of this financial crisis. What we know is that 90% of the deaths that are expected are not going to be directly from COVID, but from the impact on the healthcare system and the economic impact. So for instance, we expect the number of people who starve to death to be doubling this year. That's what the World Food Program has estimated. And and those are preventable deaths. We know that with action from governments, if governments have the resources that they need, they can significantly reduce the amount of suffering and and loss of life. Hmm. And obviously to not to put too fine a point on it, but to be real clear, we are talking about coming to the aid of countries that were already being really hobbled by huge amounts of debt that have been accumulated over a number of decades, over sometimes generations. And so you add on the pandemic, the economic collapse in those countries, and you really see vast amounts of poverty and displacement and, and real crisis in many, many countries to the tune of tens of millions of people, right? Correct. Yeah. 
And you know, we believe that we have a responsibility to our fellow human beings. And the beauty of these international resources from the IMF is that they have no cost to the US taxpayer. It's absolutely free. Not a penny would be a cost to the US government. So these are free international resources. But right now the US Treasury is blocking the release of these resources to developing countries. And we wanna make sure that people who are in need get the resources that aren't gonna cost the US anything. Of course, now when my audience hears the word free, I'm going to assume that some of people are going to roll their eyes. So just make clear, why is it free? So this is an international financial resource that the International Monetary Fund can create out of thin air and allocate to all 189 member countries of members of the IMF. And each of those countries gets an allotment of these resources. And then countries that are really desperate for cash can trade those for a hard currency that's internationally strong, like the dollar or the yen mm -hmm. or the euro. And it just, it doesn't have any cost to any particular country. So it's like a bookkeeping item, right? Uh, somebody, uh, X country says, we need X amount of money. The IMF says, okay, here's your drawing right. And then there's a line item that says this country now has this amount of this new currency, which it then can use in foreign markets, right? Is that? Uh, I will just say that the U.S. created trillions of dollars this past spring to help keep the U.S. economy afloat. That didn't cost taxpayers anything. That was the, the government created money out of thin air. So what we're talking about is doing that on the global scale. Poor hmm. countries don't have access to internationally strong currencies. And so they're not able to have that sort of stimulus that the United States created for itself. So hmm. this, these international resources from the IMF, which don't have to be paid back, they're not loans to governments. I've been a skeptic of the IMF and have real critique of the IMF in the past, but this is something that would be a release to countries in proportion to the size, roughly proportion to the size of their economies. And for poor countries and middle income countries, it would have a particularly important impact because those countries can't just create internationally strong resources. And the other, uh, and it can also help, um, it just can help stabilize a, a economies and help countries be able to spend money on food, medicine, and other life-saving supports for the people. Don, I was going to turn to you now with a question, but did you want to add to that? Well, essentially, it's a credit. I mean, it's credit enhancement for an entire country. It's, it's very similar to a consumer having $10,000 on their credit card, but they only need it in case of emergencies. And for these developing countries where their, their economies have shrunk because of COVID, it means that their ability to borrow money essentially has been diminished as their economy has been hurt and depressed. So what this does is that shore, it shores it up if it's needed. It gives them the depth that if they need to print currency, that their currency will be accepted by other countries. It's a backstop. Hmm. And what I wanted to ask you, Don, is something that was referenced in the letter that I um, referenced just a moment ago, which was a letter that was sent to the leaders of the Congress by a whole raft of folks, the Progressive Caucus, the Congressional Black Caucus, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And there's a sentence in here that goes directly to the area that you work in. I'm going to read it. SDRs and debt relief 
will not only prevent needless poverty, hunger, death, and disease abroad, but strengthen our economy at home, creating jobs by increasing demand for America's agricultural industry and U.S. exporters. And so tell us, Don, because you work in this space with farmers, what this would mean for the farmers that you know. Sure. I mean, farming, food production, we, we are part of a global economy. And the farmers that I work with are actually smaller farmers. I mean, I work with sustainable farmers, farmers that are doing regenerative practices. And what we're doing is basically conserving soil and we feel producing a higher quality product. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the general health of the farm economy is really important to farmers and sustaining farmers. Because when you look to government assistance to farmers in the United States, say COVID, because of the fallout from COVID, most of that went to larger farmers. But smaller farmers are impacted by the economy extremely heavily. I mean, it's like any small business. So. Mm-hmm. Basically, we're part of the economy, and then also we grow exports. Uh, here in Iowa, for instance, the we export about 132 billion a year in goods, and out of the top 10 goods that we export, eight of those are food-related or agricultural-related. Mm-hmm. So it's all we're all part of that economy, even if we're feeding local people, and then a a state like Iowa. I mean, 90% of the food we consume in Iowa comes from someplace else. It's not grown here. So it's important that we look at this as an integrated whole. So we not only benefit by exporting product, but we're part of the economy. Yes, I don't have much sympathy, I have to say, for big agriculture, those dominating huge companies that are actually, as you well know, far better than I, driving small farmers out of business. But I I do want to be clear and, and ask you again, do smaller farmers benefit from this too, obviously, because they have some export business as well, perhaps not on the scale of a Archer Midlands Daniel or Daniel Midlands, whatever it's, what's the name of the company, ADM, right? Um, but certainly smaller farmers have some business abroad that this would this would help them, right? Some farmers directly, I mean, if they have specialty crops that are exported or they become part of packages of food, consumer, mm-hmm. consumed organic food that gets shipped abroad. That, that happens too. But more importantly, the, the farm economy, uh, if, if the overall pricing on farm commodities is sustained with international exports, that has a direct bearing on the pricing for small farmers as they sell their goods. Now, one of the things that struck me when I first addressed this issue back in May with your colleague, Mark Weisbrot, was what a broad spectrum of folks supported this. You had Goldman Sachs, for example, supporting this idea of the SDRs, drawing rights, expanding them, all the way to the AFL-CIO. And it seems to me, to your point, Isaac, that the economy generally, and to your point, Don, as well, the economy generally can't resuscitate itself and recover unless you have broader prosperity and the ability of poor countries to recover and be able not only to consume, but to open up, say, garment factories that are now shut down. You've got millions of workers out of work in all sorts of industries. So there was broad support for this. And yet there was one roadblock, which seemed to be the White House. Am I right? So the good thing is that this is actually passed the U.S. House of Representatives 
twice in the last few months. This summer, it was part of an appropriations package. And then this fall as part of the Slim Down Heroes Act, it, it was included. The Congressional Budget Office has confirmed it has a $0 cost to the US taxpayer at this, these international, allowing these international financial resources to flow to countries around the world. And so right now we've been talking to senators and have gotten a, quite a bit of positive response. This, there, there's a bill, S4139, which was introduced by Senators Durbin and Senator Sanders. But we've also been seeing that there are a number of Republicans. In fact, I've spoken with the, personally with the chairman of the Senate Banking, Finance, and Foreign Relations Committees, those three committees, chairman, who, you know, and in those conversations, the conversations with other U.S. Senate offices, with, you know, re Republicans are generally supportive of this. It's, a, it doesn't cost anything. And it would make a really big difference for the global economy. And there's widespread, you know, support for the international leadership, for there to be, you know, most people, when I talk to them, do not want to see 10,000 ch uh, children every month additionally starving to death this year, which is what's happening. This crisis, the COVID crisis is resulting in an additional 10,000 children each month starving to death. And you know, that's not acceptable to people across the, the aisle. And it's been awesome to see that bipartisan support growing for this. Um, but well, you're right. I'm not so sure that they actually care about children starving across the aisle, I have to say, since um, there's a record number of children in the United States who don't have enough food on a daily basis. And the reason is because Republicans are blocking an additional stimulus bill, which will give their parents money in their in their pockets. So I, I'm not as perhaps optimistic as you that there's this morality going on in the other side. But to your point, there there seems to be broad support. And there was just one blockage, which was the White House. And explain to me why you think that happened. Either you or Don, why do you think there was this one uh, block going back a number of months that refused to let it go through? Well, the concern that's been voiced by the Treasury Department is that these resources are untargeted, that these international financial resources would go to all 189 IMF member countries. And the, and the stated concern is that, well, those would benefit, you know, why, why would we need to send these resources to wealthy countries? But the fact is that for wealthy countries, it's just an accounting entry. It's, yep. it's a, wealthy countries don't need these reserves. They have their own reserves that are very strong. Um, and what the, who they'll really benefit are people in poor countries and middle-income countries. Uh, so it's a very weak argument, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but that's, that's the concern is that these issues are untargeted and, and it, apparently the tre Treasury Department would prefer to decide who gets to live and who gets to die. Do you want to jump in on this, Don? Well, I mean, back to the fact that this is a very big tent that we're under. I mean, I work with all kinds of farmers. I mean, farmers are Republicans and Democrats, and I'm on the board of the Farmers Union, but also board members of the Iowa Corn Growers Association, not known for rabid liberalism, um, very conservative people. I mean, they don't want to see people die either. So yep. I do think that the, the politics are extraordinary sometimes once you get to the executive, but for the people that count and the folks that elect these senators, and I think they're going to listen to their constituents, uh, there's no downside to them supporting this. 
Can last question to either of you. Can Joe Biden make this happen by executive order without congressional action or would he have to wait until Congress passes the bill to actually make this happen? So the Treasury Department can authorize a certain up to a certain amount of these international financial resources to be released by the IMF. The US has veto power at the IMF, so currently has blocked this. Um, But in order for an allocation of these international financial resources at at the size and speed that's needed, Congress would have to vote for that. And as I mentioned, it's passed the House, so it's now just about mobilizing the Senate and making sure that we have the senators, the Republican senators who are supportive of this, we need them to speak up and we need them to find their courage and their moral courage and their leadership and weigh in with the Treasury for this and ultimately pass legislation. It could, we'd like to see that happen this year. We think it's possible. There are multiple vehicles. There's growing support for this. It can make a really big difference when constituents of senators reach out and let them know this is something they want. And you can find information at globalcovidresponse.org. At globalcovidresponse.org, there's a take action tab and there's a template for writing to your senator, sending a quick email, which can can make a difference. We've already heard from some of the Senate offices that they're hearing from constituents and that that's that's, uh, made them pay attention to this issue. Well, my audience will get right on that task. We are definitely a group of many activists who know how to write letters, know how to make phone calls. And Don and Isaac, I really appreciate you coming on the show and really informing my audience about this really important topic and where to keep track of this. And hopefully it'll pass and you won't need us anymore and we'll just be able to celebrate. But if there's any blockade, we'd love you to come back and update us so we can get our audience activated again and help with the push. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for your time. If you want to know why the two Senate runoff races in Georgia are, without too much hyperbole, a matter of life and death, think of taxes. If we want to fund all sorts of great social systems like health care for all or paid sick leave, well, the rich will have to pay a lot more and corporations can't get those damn tax breaks just simply to fund their astronomical CEO pay and benefits. But that ain't happening as long as Republicans control the Senate. And I will also say, I feel certain, pretty certain, that so-called Democrats, enough of them, will be wavering and waving the flag for tax breaks for the rich and corporations. At least, though, the fight must be had in a vigorous, unrelenting way, and not just at the federal level, but in every state. So to look at the state of play around taxes, here back on the show is one of my favorite smart people, Amy Hanauer, the executive director of the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy. So when we last spoke about this stuff about taxes, Amy, and you and I dug into this, it was pre-election, and we were sort of forecasting what might happen and what Biden's tax policy might look like. The problem that I want to raise with you is not so much Biden, but the reality is that at the federal level, it seems to me that all the important things that you laid out in your amazing writing, both uh, in the Hill column that you wrote and on your website at itep.org, 
you lay out some really important things to do, but it seems to me that in the best case scenario, if we are somehow lucky enough, the Democrats meaning, to win the two Georgia seats, you're going to end up with a 50-50 tie, which as you quite well know as a student of government, but I want to remind my listeners as well, that means that Kamala Harris would be have to be on the job at all times near the Senate to cast a tie-breaking vote. But even in those circumstances, you've got people like Joe Manchin and other more conservative Democrats who are not going to embrace the kinds of things that I think you talk about, higher taxes on the wealthy, significant potentially wealth tax, and all the important things to do. So I'm wondering whether, you know, best case scenario, it's all going to be frozen in place from your point of view. Yeah, I don't think it has to be that way. Um, just starting, starting with Joe Manchin, the one name you mentioned, I mean, I don't know why the senator from West Virginia should be scared of a wealth tax, you know? I mean, we- A good have, point. You know, we have a country with enormous inequality where wealth taxes and higher taxes on wealthy people in general and higher taxes on corporations are enormously popular. We have an outgoing president who lost after cutting taxes for the wealthy, cutting taxes for corporations, after making it possible for 91 profitable Fortune 500 companies to pay nothing in taxes in the first year of his tax law. And we have an incoming president who talked a lot about raising taxes on the wealthy and on corporations while he was running. And he won handily with a huge share of the popular vote, with a solid share of the electoral college. He won in conservative states, you know, he won in, in progressive states, and he won while talking about raising taxes. So we ought to go in and fight for an economy that actually works for working people and that raises money from those most able to pay. Yes, I love that, except for the reality is that, and you pointed out Manchin and some of the others, they seem to be not caring about for example, your point about West Virginia, that there are probably far fewer billionaires in West Virginia outside of, say, mining billionaires uh, than, say, in New York City, if you look at the billionaires who got their money from Wall Street or Silicon Valley in California. But, but still, their ideology drives it. And Manchin might as well be a Republican, for all I care. I'm just being practical. And in a minute, I'm going to actually shift to ask you the question, does it make sense to focus our energy and our hopes, if you will, at the state level? Because you laid out some really incredible stuff that has actually happened at the state level. But just to stick for a moment at the federal level, maybe I'll ask it in another way. What are things that Biden can do around tax policy through executive action that wouldn't require Congress to act if there are such things? Right, right, right. Well, um, so here's the thing. I mean, first of all, I don't think we have to shy away from legislative actions. Like, I do think that there yeah. is a legislative agenda that is a pro-tax agenda that would bring about a lot of economic fairness. And if you look at where the economy is right at this second, um, you know, the economy is about to go over a cliff. States are being slaughtered in terms of their economic prospects. And we can talk more about mm. that in a second to follow up on that part of your question. But, um, you know, I, I think he ought to come out swinging. And frankly, I think it would help in the Georgia um, special elections to mm. come out swinging to say we ought to have an economy where we tax the rich, where we tax corporations. And we do that to pay for COVID relief, you know, to pay for the fact that we've got 10 million fewer jobs than we had at the beginning of this year. We've got a lot of people out of work. 
And we've got enormous costs to get this vaccine out and get it out to people and get our economy back on track. So I think we shouldn't shy away from that, that kind of an approach. Um, there are a lot of things that I think can be done without, without the legislature, certainly in terms of regulatory reforms. Um, there are a bunch of things that Trump made worse under his presidency in terms of not enforcing the tax code. But there are also just things that were bad before Trump came in and he left them bad. And so mm. we should take those on as well. And I, yeah, sorry. I would know. I was just going to say, I totally agree with your point that we should push as hard as possible and make the most boldest demands. And certainly people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in the Senate will be voices for that. Sherrod Brown comes to mind, obviously. I was just asking as a practical matter, because actually the way I was going to segue the conversation was, do we have much more brighter spots to work on? Let's say we get stonewalled at the federal level, which is is possible. And alas, being somewhat an observer of that for the past number of decades, it's always obvious to me that Democrats give up and are always negotiating against themselves before the fight even begins. So at the state level, there's so many interesting things that have happened. I think of my own state of Oregon, where we just passed, and I actually worked a little bit on this, a tax on the most wealthiest folks in Multnomah County, which is the county for my audience that includes Portland, Oregon, where there was a, going to be a tax to fund pre-K for everyone. And then you mentioned, again, I urge my listeners to go to itp.org and really read Amy's column about the options and the things that could be done at the state. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And Marco Guzman on our staff has a new blog today with some more about state wins and losses on election day. Um, well, the Multnomah County uh, was was really a personal favorite for me because I have always loved talking about just pre-K or childcare is a great example. It's a great way of describing how we could raise more revenue and it would both help working families position the next generation better, relieve poverty. Like it's just such a win, 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 win. And in your case, one of the things I particularly loved about that was that in addition to expanding access, I can't remember if it was pre-K or childcare, I think pre-K, right? But in addition to- Yeah. In addition to expanding access, it also raised wages for the teachers and the aides working in that profession, which of course I know from your long history is near and dear to your heart, right? Like we cannot win in the pre-K system if we set struggling families who are attempting to pay for one of the most unaffordable things in anybody's budget against teachers who are attempting to make a living and deliver great care and deliver great education to our youngest kids, you know. So that was just a really, really touching little example of what a local community can do. But at the state level, statewide, we also saw some wins. I mean, this year, New Jersey passed a millionaire's tax to fund COVID relief, particularly focused on the lowest income families. It's also going to fund some health care and education expenses in New Jersey. That's a great example of a state making their tax code more progressive, taxing those most able to pay, paying for some essential things that are going to address racial and gender inequities um, and, and then address economic inequities at the same time. So my home, to, I, I spent a lot of years in Ohio. A lot of people think of me as an Ohio person, but I was born in New Jersey and I was very happy to see that happen in my home state. And then and you're born in New, you're always in New Jersey, girl. When you're born in New Jersey, it never leaves you no matter where you are, right? 
Always. And, you know, after a drink, you can hear it even more in my voice. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, Arizona, which is a much more conservative state historically, um, you know, the, that was one of the places where the Red for Ed teachers' rights mm. movement really emerged strongly a couple of years ago when their, you know, schools had been cut to the bone and teachers had really had it. And there was very careful, thoughtful, ongoing organizing that went on in Arizona. And as a result, on election day, they passed a higher tax on the highest income um, households in Arizona to pay for schools, to pay for better schools and smaller class sizes and better education for kids in Arizona. So those are just two examples statewide of really good results on election day. Um, you know, other states should should jump on board. And I'll just say, I mean, Meg Weehy, my colleague at um, Deputy Executive Director at ITEP would kill me if I didn't. Um, most state tax systems are upside down, meaning that in most states, um, we require lower income families to pay a higher share of their income in state and local taxes than higher income families. That's the opposite of how it should be. It's upside down. What we really want is state tax systems that have those most able to pay, pay a higher share so that we can have benefits that kind of cross the economy and do it in a way that those most able to pay can, can afford. And couldn't you in states like Oregon, which actually does not have a state sales tax, which to me is mind boggling. I don't know how you can uh, actually have a long-term survivable budget uh, and really do what needs to be done in this state and other states when you don't have a state sales tax. Couldn't you do it in a progressive way? For example, couldn't you first of all have a sales tax just to get the camel's nose under the tent that just targets, for example, luxury items, say cars over, I'm just going to make up a figure, $50,000 or uh, diamonds, jewelry, things which are really targeted at those who are much more wealthier and then exclude things like food and stuff that people need to survive. Yeah, well, many um, well-crafted state sales taxes do exclude food and clothing, um, and sometimes there's differentials in what constitutes clothing. Um, but we are actually huge fans of the progressive income tax at the state level, more so than a sales tax, because the sales tax mm -hmm. is almost always going to fall more heavily on lower-income families, who, of course, spend almost everything they earn, while wealthier families can save more of what they earn. Um, and so, you know, we, we think a progressive income tax with several rates so that you pay one rate on earnings up to $50,000, one rate on earnings up from 50 to 150 and, you know, and so on. But with top brackets that are like a half millionaires and a millionaires bracket, that makes a lot of sense because there's a big difference between um, those levels of earnings and most states even if they have a progressive income tax, have failed to kind of let those uh, adjust as the economy adjusts. So progressive income tax and corporate taxes are like our go-tos for state level taxes. But we, you know, we think sales tax has a role to play in that as well. Yeah, I just wanted to make the point, I totally agree with your point and you are the expert this, that sales taxes are not inherently uh, all regressive, that you can structure them in a way that are better, but you're totally right. The burden should be on uh, corporate uh, taxes and high wealth income taxes. I totally agree with that. Sure, and and just you know to to kind of have an add on to that, you know, you see a similar thing with similar thing with property taxes, where you could have a mansion tax, for example, or a tax on second homes that was higher than the tax on first homes. So there's a lot of ways that you could do things, um, you know, recognizing that 
homes are the biggest assets that most middle income families have. Most poor families don't have homes at all, but they end up paying the property tax as a pass through as renters. Um, but that there are ways to structure these that better tap. And then of course, and you'll love this, you know, a home is the biggest source of wealth that most middle income families have. For wealthy families who have a lot of their wealth in the form of stocks, um, you know, those, those aren't, earnings from stocks are not taxed at the same level at all. And then we have no tax whatsoever on that form of wealth. So we have this sort of discrimination built into the only form of wealth tax that we have, which is a property tax. And then we, we don't end up taxing, you know, uh, huge stock portfolios. Right. And that's essentially the underlying idea behind Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax. And Bernie Sanders has proposed that as well, that you really take a, a big chunk out of this enormous wealth. I mean, you know as well as I know that um, over the past several months during the pandemic, a handful of billionaires have raked in tens of billions of dollars more in wealth. And it's just astounding to me that the people are not out in the streets basically calling a general strike until these people give back some of that money. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's really outrageous, and it shows that that Joe Biden has a long way to go, right? Like he could do everything that he talked about during the campaign, all of which is very popular: taxing people with earnings over four hundred thousand dollars a year, raising um, income taxes on that group, raising um, corporate taxes. But he could, you know, he didn't talk much about a wealth tax, and there's clearly room to do that. It's very popular, and it's just very justified given the way our economy has changed because that ends up being huge intergenerational transfers mm. uh, that just accumulate and accumulate in a capitalistic system like ours. Mm -hmm. I wanted to mention one other uh, development that I think is, it's not a direct income tax, but it certainly is being paid by corporations, which is the incredible success of the campaign to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour in Florida, where it passed overwhelmingly 60% plus at a time that Joe Biden was losing the state. And I actually went and did an analysis, which people can see on my new newsletter. And it's also on our website, workinglife.org. And I went county by county, which trust me, is a torturous procedure. And I looked at every single county and in every single county, even the ones that Trump won, that ballot initiative overperformed Joe Biden in some places quite significantly. And my point to that is that while it's not a direct tax in the way you and I were discussing, it's extremely popular across the nation that the average person should benefit more, that we should make sure that people get more income, that the wealthier pay more in taxes. And certainly in this case, when it comes to the minimum wage, it is coming out of the corporate coffers. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, you know, I worked in Ohio in 2006 to raise the minimum wage. It was one of the happiest, you know, achievements of, of, of the years that I spent in Ohio. I think it's incredibly important. And I think you point out a really um, crucial and underappreciated aspect of it, which is that the tax policy, fair tax policy and fair wage policy are two sides of the same coin. And 
in addition, you know, first of all, if we have adequate taxes, it enables exactly what we were talking about earlier. You can pay teachers better. You can pay all these public sector workers better. And that's a lot of good working class and middle class jobs. It's a lot, you know, public sector jobs are a huge way that people have joined the middle class historically in the United States. It's been a huge route out of poverty for the black community historically and for new immigrants coming to this country in every wave of immigrants throughout the 20th century. So when we have a more robustly funded public sector, we can pay public sector workers more. But furthermore, this is kind of a funny flip side to it. You know, in a lot of other countries, a lot of things that are that individual families or individual people are responsible for paying for in the United States are just kind of part of what you get as a citizen. And that includes pre-K often, it includes um, higher education often, it includes transit often, you know? And so um, you have these places where if you take those three items out of the individual family budget, if, if public transit is essentially free, and college is, you know, low or no cost. In Germany, it's pretty much free. Um, and pre-K is low or no cost. Then families, really, it's like giving them a big raise. So yeah. there's just other, there's a lot of ways to get at this, but minimum wage is absolutely, it's the thing that Americans understand best about class. Um, and I would throw into your great list broadband, which should be a public utility and everybody should get free as well. That would be a huge savings for, God, millions of people, especially in this time when we're reading all very frequently that all the folks staying at home, disproportionately, people of color and poor people are being hurt. Their kids are being hurt because they don't have easy access to broadband to do this distance learning. Yeah. And then you'll you'll probably kill me if I fail to, if because we both oh, left yeah. out health care. You know? Yeah. I mean, come on, right? Every other country, yeah, of course. Just, it kind of comes with comes with birth, pretty much. Well, this is a great transition to the final point I wanted to talk and you uh, to you about, and you kind of um, telegraph this, which is the situation we're in right now with this crazy stimulus talk, and it does relate directly to your expertise on taxes and state funding, which is it's kind of astonishing to me, and I say astonishing at a moral level, not that these politicians don't ever surprise me with their immorality and their inability to see what the actual people need. But if you go state by state and you look at their budget situations, it's dire because of the pandemic. And every state either has already drawn up budget cuts or is in the process of drawing up huge budget cuts because they don't have the tax revenues right now because the economy has collapsed. And those budget cuts are going to hit people prolong the pain, prolong the economic decline, the slump, the collapse, because it's going to cost people, millions of people across the nation, their jobs. Lots of people are employed, for example, in the public sector. And it's just astonishing to me that as part of this stimulus package, it's not a no-brainer to basically give states huge relief on the order of half a trillion dollars, maybe more. Yeah. Well, you, again, you're rescuing me because one of the main things that my organization, Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, works on is supporting all of these phenomenal state-level think tanks as they fight for better tax policy at the state and local level. Because if we, what we did wrong during the Great Recession is that we just 
we failed to enable states to maintain their employment and to maintain the things that they pay for for people. And so it really prolonged the recession, in addition to depriving people of basic things that enable them to thrive. So it is crazy to be kind of counter cyclical in that way to use an economist term, right? Like we've got to put money into the economy right now when a lot of people's private um, paychecks are diminished or eliminated. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure we don't have to lay off teachers and um, sanitation workers and firefighters and, and everybody else who's employed by state and local government. So if you had your magic wand and you were given the power to basically shape um, this stimulus package, how would you do it that relates obviously to state funding, but also in terms of tax policy that then could serve as a basis for things going forward? So at the next crisis, we wouldn't be in the situation. And I'm thinking, for example, making sure that we have funded through tax policy, paid sick leave and paid leave. So people, when there is a pandemic and they are ill, can actually stay home. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love when you give me a magic wand at the end of an interview. And so, you know, yeah, I have um, this great power to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, I think that there is just it, the reason that this COVID epidemic and this recession has been so hard in the United States is that we were really ill-equipped because we had high rates of poverty going into it. We had high rates of people lacking health insurance going into it. We had high rates of essential workers who didn't have paid sick days and didn't have the ability to take a day off when they felt sick and didn't have the ability to fight to be protected in the workplace. Um, you think of the meat packers, um, you know, who, who've been so uh, victimized in meatpacking plants throughout the United States, where there have been huge outbreaks and they haven't had the power to take a day off or demand personal protective equipment. Um, so, you know, that's a fundamental flaw in our economy that not only hurts people and hurts people every day, but means that we were positioned to do particularly poorly under COVID. Um, mm. So, Going forward, we know that we've got to get, we've got to distribute this vaccine. We've got to get people protected. We've got to get money back into people's pay, into people's pocketbooks, and we've got to get money back into state coffers. But we also know going forward that we still don't have universal health care, that we still are not doing enough to prevent climate change, and that we could create a lot of jobs in this country simply by addressing some of those ongoing problems of underinvestment. So we should, you know, raise money from those most able pay. We've got many, many millionaires and billionaires, and we've got many profitable corporations that can easily afford to pay more. And we can use it for, you know, a second new deal, uh, whatever, you know, salutary phrase you want to use to describe it. But to do what we did, and we did it inequitably in the 20th century, but to do some of what we did in the 20th century, which is to invest in our people and think about the problems of this future and put money into solving them and addressing them. All right, then. So we're going to end towards the end of the year, waiting for all this to kind of play out as the new administration comes into office and you are going to come back on this program and we are going to debate this about what actually happens, you know, to see how it all plays out both in Congress and at the state level. As usual, thank you so much for giving me your insights and giving my audience your incredible knowledge about this tax issue. 
Always so much fun to talk to you and I look forward to coming back. That'll do it for this week's broadcast. Thanks to my guests, Amy Hanauer, Isaac Evans-France, and Don Wiviat. Our editor, as usual, is David Hebden. If you're still feeling bad about Missing Giving Tuesday, I am your angel of guilt resolution. Go over to workinglife.org, look for the podcast tab, and click over there, and you will see a link to Patreon, where, as I said before, you can sign up as a one-time sponsor or a monthly supporter, or you can go over to Act Blue and look for Working Life with Jonathan Tassini, and there you also can become a one-time sponsor or a monthly sponsor. Thanks for being with us. Look forward to having you back next week. 